Okay. There's a sign-up sheet in the back for the baptism. I'm just trying to decide if I need a wetsuit or not. If I need one, praise the Lord. If I'm going to be in there for a while because we're going to do several of them. I know of at least three that we're doing. That's one of the three. And uh, baptism, of course, is an outward expression of an inward change. It's sort of a public declaration. You don't need to be re-baptized if you've been baptized before. You know how we sometimes rededicate our life to the Lord? Praise God, I do that every week, I think. But baptism, you don't have to do. Now, if you were baptized like as a child before you were saved, then you should be baptized. So if you haven't been baptized, it's like the first thing we do as Christians. It's a commandment, and Scripture has nothing to do with your salvation, right? It doesn't finalize your salvation or anything like that, right? The thief on the cross, Jesus said, surely today you will be with me in paradise. And he didn't get down off the cross and get baptized, did he? So it has nothing to do with that, but it is something we do as an act of obedience to the Lord. So sign up just so we know how many are going to be there for that baptism. It's going to be a great event. And then Matt announced the sermon prep class as well. I just wanted to let you know that even if you're not sure that you ever want to teach, but you just want to observe the class, that's okay also. There are some individuals who uh, may not uh, actually go through the class as far as teaching, but they want to uh, go through all four weeks to learn the material and observe, and you're welcome to do that as well, and that'll be at 1230 today. Okay, John chapter 2 this morning, and I've noticed there's an interesting contrast right out of the gate in how the Apostle John presents Jesus in the first two stories of Jesus's public ministry. The one we saw last week where he turns water to wine, and then the one that we're going to see this week where he cleanses the temple. You probably know a little bit or at least are vaguely familiar with the story, it takes place around Passover. Passover is tied to the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And what would they do in anticipation for that week-long feast is they would go through their home and they would get rid of all of their leaven. Leaven, of course, in the Bible is a picture of sin. So they would remove all the leaven, and not just the leaven, but anything that contributed to leaven. And the whole idea, the grand picture here, is that God was wanting his people to stop and consider how a little bit of leaven, how a little bit of corruption sometimes sort of over time lately creeps into our homes and how sometimes we got to kind of do a little cleaning for ourselves in those areas. And so in light of the fact that everybody's doing this at Passover, cleaning their homes, symbolic of cleaning up the leaven in their lives. That's exactly what Jesus does in his father's house. He comes in and he cleanses the temple, gives it a good spring cleaning, they might say. And you'll see in this passage that Jesus is very different than what we saw last week, where he just kind of adds a little bit of joy to a local wedding. This morning in our passage, he's a little bit riled up, isn't he? It's kind of cool to see when you think about it, but very different than what we saw before and an interesting picture of uh, Jesus, and he is uh, very versatile. 
in the scriptures. He's not just that loving, patient God. He is all of that, but he's also righteous, and he hates sin. And so we'll look at that this morning. It occurred to me a few nights ago as I was cooking dinner and making a mess, as I always do, but that is our arrangement. Um, my wife figures if she can get me to cook, uh, she'll clean for me. One out of two, she figures, ain't bad at uh, this stage of the game. Maybe two out of two someday she's hoping for, but one out of two for now. And she cleans up after me as I go. And I always go, why do you do that? Why don't you just wait till we're done, and then you can clean up? I mean, I'm literally dropping things on the ground, and she's cleaning it up as we go. And it occurred to me that it is an ongoing process, right? It always is. Cleaning the house, you have to constantly be on guard against dirty dishes and stained carpet and clutter buildup. You know, or else over time, you're going to have on your hands a big mess. It reminds me of the story of these two seminary students that were walking downtown in London in a shopping district, and they saw in the window, a display window, there was a suit hanging in that window, and there was a sign on it that read, uh, slightly soiled, greatly reduced in price. And one of them thought, ah, that's it right there. That made me think of something. Because sometimes we look at a, a vulgar picture, or we read a coarse book, or we allow ourselves to entertain inappropriate thoughts, and what happens is it has an effect on us. We get a little soiled, slightly soiled. And what happens is our usefulness for the Lord is sort of reduced. We're less effective for his purposes because of that. And you know, when the Lord sees that happen to us, he gets a little riled up. He's not excited about that. And that's the Lord Jesus that we're going to see in the passage this morning. Very different than the one that was turning water to wine or even the one that's been introduced to us in John chapter 1 so far. Think about it. He's God. He's eternal. He transcends time. When the beginning began, he was already there. He laid the foundations of the earth. He's also the creator. He put the stars in the sky. The Bible says nothing was made that he didn't make. He did the whole thing himself. He also breathed the breath of life into man. He's also omniscient, which means he's all-knowing. Remember, at the end of the chapter, as he begins to call his disciples, he has that exchange with Nathaniel. I think that's an incredible exchange where he's talking to Nathaniel. Not only does he tell Nathaniel where Nathaniel was earlier that day when no one could have known, but he tells Nathaniel what he was like. He read his heart. And actually, John will make mention of something to the similar effect this morning in our text, how Jesus knows our hearts. We sang it just now. He knows our name. He knows everything I say. He knows our tears. He hears me when I call. He knows about us. He's the king. He's a creative, active God, and yet he's humble. I mean, you walk up to me and say, nice shirt, pastor, and I'm on cloud nine the rest of the day. Ready to go to GQ right after that. I think I'm something special because I have a nice shirt on. He's nothing like that. Himself, in Matthew 11, he described himself as meek, which means gentle, and lowly. The creator of the universe describes himself as lowly. John the Baptist said, he's so awesome, I'm not even worthy to loosen the sandal strap 
and wash his feet. And yet he washed the feet of the disciples. So he's the king, he's the creator, but he's humble. In fact, in his first miracle last week, he does it behind the scenes. You know, despite the fact that maybe Mary would have wanted him to put on a grand display so she would be vindicated all those years, no one ever knowing that she remained faithful before marriage. But he didn't do that. He did it behind the scenes. And at that, he didn't cleanse a leper or raise someone from the dead for all the multitudes to see. He simply just turned water to wine, a picture of joy wine is in the Bible. He just added a little bit of joy to a small town wedding. And that's what Jesus is, right? He's full of joy and grace and mercy and love and forgiveness. He's the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. But he's also the Lion of the tribe of Judah as well, isn't he? He really is. And he can be intense. He can be poignant and he can be direct. And that's what he looks like today. Now, we know he's full of faithfulness and graciousness, but he's also full of righteousness as well. Especially, and keep this in mind, he's especially that way as it pertains to his church. His people are very hearts. You might say, the Bible says it, that he's a jealous God. It doesn't mean he's jealous of us, like he's not bummed out when you choose something over him. Oh, man. He's jealous for us because of the ramifications that we bring upon ourselves when we choose sin over his ways. And so our take home, what we're going to get to, what we're going to build on is in the same picture as these people are going through and they're cleaning out their homes. When we allow stuff to get into our homes, to get into our lives, to get into our hearts that interrupts our intimacy with him, he gets jealous for us. He gets a little riled up because he cares, because he loves us so much. So let's take a look where we picked up last time, beginning in verse 12. And it says, after this, after that first public miracle, he went down to Capernaum. That's where his residence would be at this point in his life. He, his mother, his brothers, notice his mother and his brothers are together. Mary wasn't perpetually a virgin. She went on to have other children. Jesus had brothers, half-brothers, of course, same mom, different dad, and his disciples, and they did not stay there many days. Now the Passover, the Jews, was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now that's interesting when you take a look at that. They're in Capernaum, and it says they went up to Jerusalem. Capernaum, if you look at a map, it's north of Jerusalem, and yet it says that they went up to Jerusalem. You would think, geographically speaking, it would say they went down to Jerusalem. But always in the scriptures, it says that they go up to Jerusalem. And the reason why is because Jerusalem is up on top of a mountain. It's on a plateau. It's an elevated city, 2,500 feet above sea level. Psalms 120 to 134 are known as the Psalms of Ascent. They're the songs, Matt was talking about that today, psalms that are songs that they would sing as they were climbing up to Jerusalem. Songs of joy, songs of gladness. And you have to be glad in your heart. You have to be excited in your heart to sing as you're climbing. Try just climbing up those stairs right there 
and sing at the same time. You can get out of breath real quick. And they would do it the whole way up because they were happy. They were excited. It was a time of celebration. It's the Passover. It's the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Three times a year they'd have these feasts and it was a time to celebrate. But Jesus is anything but in a celebratory mood as he arrives in Jerusalem. Because it says in verse 14, and he found in the temple, and this is probably referring to the courtyard that surrounds the temple, those who sold oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers doing business. So apparently they had set up a little enterprise selling animals in the courtyard there of the temple. Now the practice itself probably began innocently enough. See, people would come from all over the world this time of year for the Passover. The Jews would come from long distance away, some of them from 100 miles away or even further. They would make their way to Jerusalem, and for some it was a hardship. It was difficult to make this trek all the way there, especially if you're lugging a big old oxen with you or a sheep with you all of this way. I mean, you and I can get in an air-conditioned car, go on a road trip with our dog, and our dog can drive us crazy. Just imagine lugging a big old oxen 100 miles to Jerusalem. So someone came up with the bright idea, hey, what if, what if we just have the animals here for the sacrifice? They don't have to bring their own that way. They could just buy an animal when they arrive. Now, what might have started out in a good spirit with a good idea, eventually people always take good ideas and they find evil ways to exploit them. They found, some of these people did, under the guise of the high priest, a way to make some profit, to do a little business. And that's what Jesus sees as he shows up. Because what would happen is, people that were bringing animals would take them to the priests, and the priests would inspect them. And remember, the Old Testament says that the animal had to be without blemish. Okay? And guess what? They would find a blemish. Let me see that sheep. Oh, there's a blemish right there. And then this poor family that had traveled miles and miles to get there is like, oh, we've come all the way to sacrifice this animal to the Lord our God, and we don't have an unblemished animal. And, of course, then the priest would say, well, good news. We just happen to have, behind curtain number two, pre-approved, unblemished animals. And if you act now, and I can't do this all day, for $19.99, we'll sell you a shiny sheep or a dazzling dove or an awesome oxen, something along those lines. And we kind of laugh, but that's the exact practice that they were involved in. That's what they were doing. Sad when you think about it, taking advantage of the house of God. And not only that, John says the money changers were getting in on the act as well, because as these uh, pilgrims are coming uh, for the worship and for the sacrifice, they're bringing their Roman currency. And they go, oh, you can't use that here. That's got a picture of the Caesar on it. That's idolatry. You've got to convert that to Israelite shekels, to Hebrew shekels. And they were charging exorbitant exchange rates. I mean, it was a big scam. And so the board and I met on Thursday night, and we've decided that we're no longer going to accept U.S. dollars for tithes and offerings anymore. We're going to convert everything to capital community bucks. 
at a 25% exchange rate. I'm just kidding. You'd probably go find another church, right? But in those days, there wasn't another church a mile down the road. So what did you do? I mean, you probably do it out of your love for God, but man, you'd grind your teeth over the thing. And there was maybe a million pilgrims making this trek. And you get a buck or two on each one, and Josephus said that those priests were making the equivalent of millions of dollars. That's not what the church is supposed to be. It's not supposed to be about money and business. You know, working on staff at Calvary Santa Cruz all those years, and even now, as the pastor of this church, we get things in the mail all the time. And so often, the model that they're pushing us from some organization is a straight-up business model. You do this, and they'll do that. It works. And the profit will soar, and you'll be able to get that church building and all that kind of thing. And the Lord has never been thrilled with a business model because business is all about numbers and money, and that's the furthest thing from the heart of God. But don't get me wrong. I mean, we're called to be responsible, good stewards of the money that God's given us. And you know what? We're not afraid to spend money either if we feel like God's called us to do it. But we just pray and we seek him and we say, Lord, we want to use your money in the most efficient way possible that will help usher people into the kingdom. And that's how we try to do it. It's not to have a profit and loss sheet that's impressive or build up assets or anything along those lines. It's not supposed to be a business. But that's exactly what Jesus sees as he arrives here. And he is, to say the least, extremely troubled by it. It says in verse 15, when he had made a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers' money and overturned the tables. And yet he's not out of control because it says, and he said to those who sold doves, take those things away, making sure that the innocent birds don't get harmed in the midst of the ruckus. And he says, don't make my father's house a house of merchandise. So the same one who we said is meek and lowly, Jesus Christ, the most loving, gracious, gentle, patient man that ever lived, I got to believe at this moment in time, had a countenance that was fierce. Jesus Christ was no wimp. You know, 30 years as a carpenter, you know, he's probably built pretty well. And apparently nobody stands up to him here. It says he drove them all out of the temple. He cleans house. He gives it a good spring cleaning. He just drives them all out. He uses a whip of cords. <laughs> He's whipping. Jesus Christ, psh, psh, get out of here. <laughs> he turns over the tables. The coins go rolling. You can only imagine people scrambling to pick up the coins on the ground. And apparently within minutes, the place is cleared. Now, for those of you, for those of us who at times have trouble with your temper, and that's a nice way of putting it, for those of us that sometimes struggle with the sin of anger and wrath, I know nothing of it, so I'll speak theoretically here. <laughs> I'm glad you laughed when I said that. 
you cannot take this and say, yeah, well, you know, Jesus got angry too. And use this to mask every bit of anger or wrath that comes out of me and hide it behind this story right here. This is a righteous anger. I'm not saying we're incapable of righteous anger, but let's be honest. More often than not, it's not a righteous anger. So it's important we understand that's what Jesus is doing here. It's righteous. It's even prophetic, okay? Because the disciples realized, look at verse 17. It says, then his disciples remembered that it was written. It was written in Psalm 69, which is a messianic psalm. Zeal for your house has eaten me up. And the word eaten means consumed. And zeal means heat. It speaks of fervency of mind or of heart. The American Heritage Dictionary puts it this way about zeal. Enthusiastic devotion to a cause, ideal or goal, and tireless diligence in its furtherance. We use the word sometimes passion. Zeal means passion. Jesus Christ was zealous about the house of God. What are we zealous about? What are you zealous about? What gets you all charged up? What gets you riled up? What are you passionate for? The 49ers? Might have to wait a while on that one. Politics? Stock market? Whatever it is. Jesus Christ, his passion, what he got riled up, charged up about, was his father's house where people would meet in the name of the Lord and offer sacrifices to the Lord and commune with the Lord. And I believe that he's zealous for this little house right here on the corner of Capitol and what is that, 46 right there? And I believe that because the Bible says that he magnifies his word above his name. It's also in the Psalms. And I believe that he is zealous for a house where they magnify his word. And so we're going to continue to magnify his word, and I believe he will continue to be zealous for this place. People sometimes say about someone like me or a church like this or churches that make the Bible the focus of what they do, I've heard this criticism, maybe you've heard it before, they say, you guys act like the Bible is the fourth part of the Trinity. No, it's the second part of the Trinity. John said Jesus was the word of God. That's why he magnifies his word above his name. I also believe that he's zealous for this place because this is a place in which worship and praise flows and is uninterrupted. And he knows our hearts. We're not perfect. We got a lot of growth here in this church. We're learning. God's building us up. No question about that. But he knows our hearts. He knows we're not trying to make a buck here. He knows we're not trying to prop up some man. He knows we're not interested in being enthralled and entertained by musicians. He knows that we seek his exaltation, don't we? We do. I, there's no doubt about that in my mind, that we seek the glory and exaltation of Jesus Christ and him alone. But there's more here, and you've got to go just a little bit deeper to really get the sense of what I think he's hitting at here. He's not just zealous for the church. He's not just zealous for this place, but he's also zealous for your very 
heart. Remember, the scriptures declare that you are a temple of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus, we'll see in a minute, will refer to his very body as a temple of the Holy Spirit. So he's zealous for you. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 writes, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? For you were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. Of all the places in the universe where the Holy Spirit could choose to dwell, he chooses to dwell inside of you and me. And so accordingly, he doesn't just want to dwell there, but he wants to do a little bit of work in there too. He does sort of an ongoing cleaning inside of us throughout our lives. He's got to cleanse that temple every once in a while. And maybe this morning you're here and there's some things inside of your heart, some things you've been entertaining in your mind, things that you've been going through, and maybe God's calling you, I don't know, but maybe he's calling you to do a little bit of cleaning. Maybe some things have crept into your home lately or crept into your heart lately that have got to go. And I'm not going to sit here and tell you what you should or shouldn't do. I'm not going to tell you what things should go or shouldn't go. I'm not going to take that place in your life. But I do think I feel comfortable enough as your pastor to say there probably are some things in all of our lives. And at times we have to reassess and say, Lord, search my heart and show me which things have to go. Is you have to be careful that's why the Lord allowed this time of cleaning before the Feast of Unleavened Bread, because these things creep in slowly. The leaven builds up over time. It's been said that worldliness is what any particular culture does to make sin look normal and righteousness look strange. Even to the point where sometimes for a believer, it's difficult for us to differentiate between what is righteous and what is sin. And you know, part of the problem is the church because the second that anyone says that's wrong, everybody points to them and says, you're a legalist. And that's why I'm standing up here saying, I can't tell you. I'm not going to tell you what to do or not do. I can't take that place since someone will say he's being legalistic. But you have to take this then to the Lord and you have to allow him to share those things with you. You have to be open to God. And you have to open up your heart and let him correct you in those areas. And what Paul was saying in that passage from 1 Corinthians, make no mistake, is that sin and compromise can hinder and quench the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. We're not talking about salvation. Salvation has nothing to do with your righteousness. All of our righteousness put together are filthy rags. You can't contribute to your righteousness one bit, but there is a sense of usability for him that is in part dependent on all that stuff that I allow myself to see, to read, to expose myself to over time. And so what Jesus is seeing here on a very practical level is not just people getting taken advantage of, that's happening, but he's also seeing a ridiculous distraction that's taking people's eyes off of the true ministry that's supposed to be taking place at the temple. Worship needed to be uninterrupted but it wasn't. 
praise was being halted and prayer was being hindered. It's been said that the flow of the Holy Spirit into our heart is almost like a, a river flowing into a lake. The lake is fed by the river, but oftentimes rocks get into the river and they serve as like a dam. And those rocks are the sin in our lives that prevents that flow of the river into the lake, the flow of the Holy Spirit into our lives. And God is going to be righteously angry about any barriers that I put up that keeps me distant from him. And why would he not be? I said, Lord, I want to give my life to you. I know that you're what I need. I know you're what's best for me. And he says, well, these things are interrupting the flow a little bit. They're getting in the way of your prayer life. They keep you away from reading the scriptures every morning. I always say this book will keep you from sin. The Bible will keep you from sin. But sin will keep you from this book. Because I get caught up in sin and I don't want to read the Bible. And so he says, I'm zealous. I'm jealous for you, Joe. When you let those things get in the way of our relationship. So, verse 18, the Jews answered and said to him, What sign do you show us since you do these things? Remember in 1 Corinthians, Paul would later say that this is characteristic of an unbeliever, this kind of response. What sign do you show us? Lord, show me a sign and I'll believe. But that wasn't the case. Remember that scene just a little bit later on? He's casting out a demon and they go, this fellow casts out demons by the power of Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons, Satan himself. Remember? So even when he saw them 